It's two guys talking sports movies. He's Bobby Hensley. I'm Sean Styers. Glad to have you with us for another edition of the podcast. I'm, I'm interested to see how this one goes. It's going to be a little bit different. Before we get to that, let's remind all of our favorite listeners and non-favorite, I guess. As well. <laughs> yeah, just anyone. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, rate us, leave us some feedback. Feel free to suggest a movie for us in the comment section if you'd like us to do a podcast on it. Or leave your comments on a movie we've already done. Got some more ratings after our last podcast, I noticed. That's so, good. Thank you. It's just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. It's just going right up. Yeah, we're going to go viral in no time. We're doing this a little bit differently today. We usually do a movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. The only non-movie that we have is we did a, a list, our top 10. Each of us did our top 10 favorite, all-time favorite football movies. This one is a little bit different, though. It's uh, We're going to go through, not necessarily in order, top five, top ten, whatever. We just decided that we would talk about some of our favorite 30 for 30, which are documentaries. The ESPN franchise. Yeah, ESPN. And I don't know if you know, noticed this. I think we might have talked about it. They used to have them on Netflix right. until recently. But now that everyone's trying to uh, gain some traction in the digital space... ESPN has moved them all over to the ESPN Plus streaming app. Right, and they're all there, though. That's nice, because yeah. on Netflix, they were all weren't available. Yeah, and there's still some that show up, like I have AT&T U-verse. I don't know why I'm plug promoting them, because they stink, but well, that's what I'm stuck with for now. Not a plug. <laughs> but there are some that show up on demand still from, from time to time, like well, the, uh, the Dennis Rodman one just aired. Last week, and I think you said you didn't see that, correct? Correct. But uh, so, like that one still shows up on demand. You can go back and find it. And there are just a few here and there, probably a half dozen or so you can find. But I think well, it depends on what's maybe aired most recently. I say if they've aired them recently, they're going to give you a couple for free to try and get you to go to the yeah service. Yeah. So, so in any case, we are uh, we're we're probably going to have to try to find more access. I don't know if I'm up for spending the money. For the ESPN Plus app. I'm, and you clearly don't have friends that you could share a login with. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> well, my son helps me out, like with Netflix, then uh, the Amazon Prime streaming app. That's you know, great. Those kind of things. Then do, you, you, do you have the ESPN Plus app? Is that right? I do, yeah. Oh, so you're not willing to, to help out we'll with We'll see that? how this goes. Okay. <laughs> so we're just going to go through and rattle off some of our favorite 30 for 30s, and we'll talk about them for a little bit. You've done a lot more research than me on this. I'm not surprised. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Bobby was like, I thought this was going to be a no prep episode. Yeah, I thought we would just talk, and nope, you have everything written. You have a whole script over there. It's still not a script, but they're just, these are are notes. I'll just start off with with one of my favorites. And again, like ranking these, I I don't think that... Necessarily matters. It changes I, on your mood almost. Yeah, what exactly. Or what a, season it is. What, what time sport. of year? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great point. Finally. Yeah. All right. Wrap. We're done. So, <laughs> so one of my all-time favorites is I hate Christian Leitner. They, I do too. They made it. Have you seen it? Oh no, I'm well, gonna you hate, do him. hate him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, they made it about four years ago, 2015, and it's just a a documentary examining the love-hate relationship of. Maybe the most famous. Do you think Christian Leitner is the most famous Duke player ever? Wow. It's different because in college basketball, the stars are more the coaches than the players. Mm-hmm. Christian Leitner's definitely up there. And I think that, that was a, 
little bit before my era, though. Yeah, I think it's a lot different now because of one and done, and even the time when you didn't have when when college or when players could skip college and go straight to the NBA. This was this was the peak, I think, of the three and four year college basketball player. The early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, and as the '90s progressed. You got to the point early 2000s where you could just skip high school and go straight to the NBA. But I think part of what made Christian Leitner, just like Duke right now, Duke and Coach K are still very polarizing, just like you could say Notre Dame football, the Yankees, whatever it happens to be, the Cowboys, whatever. Duke is is right up there as far as polarization. polarization. But I think it's more Coach K slash Duke, as opposed to you don't have the players because the players, the, the the best players are by and large one and done, whereas Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, Brian Davis, all these guys from this era, I mean, they were there for three to four years. I think Grant Hill's probably the most known Duke basketball player of all time. Most known, but I don't think he's nearly as hated as Christian oh, Leitner, for example. Yeah. Leitner's definitely more polarizing, and you can't think about Christian Leitner without that shot he made against Kentucky. Yeah, and what happened against Timberlake and Kentucky when he stomps on the player. And you might not necessarily remember it as much because it's that last-second shot on the long inbound by Hill, but that's what makes this so great is they they go back again because this was the, the peak of the four-year guy. This was really the rise of Duke basketball, winning the national championship under Coach K. They knocked off the great UNLV UNLV team, beat my Kansas Jayhawks, who were kind of a Cinderella themselves in uh, the national championship. But these guys were around year after year, and Christian Leitner just epitomized. I mean, he was competitive. He crossed the line sometimes, but he epitomized – sort of what we all, people that don't like Duke basketball, he was that in a nutshell, both because they were so good and because he made himself so despised, essentially. He he thrived on the, on the fact that you hated him. So who was the kid a couple of years ago from Duke that was very similar? He was tripping people. Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen. Yeah. It's like they could almost remake that about him because he was kind of, the thing about Leitner is there was no social media back then. So I wonder how that would scope the perception of him today. That's a really good point. With Twitter and Facebook. You're doing that kind of stuff today, but like, you know, he would go on the road and they were they were yelling homophobic stuff at him and just all kinds of stuff. And he'd just stand there and wave his arms in the air, like bring Bring it it on. on. And that's and uh, but but I'm with you, especially during that era. I hated Christian Leitner. But I think and, and granted, any documentary, depending on what side you're going to take. You can humanize someone a little bit more, but I think he does become more human because they talk to his brother. They talk to his parents. They talk to to people. Now, now they're not all painting glowing pictures of him because they will all fully admit that Christian Leitner knew how to antagonize, but he again, he thrived on it, and at the end of the day, he was a competitor, and that was his number one goal. And I think we would all say, if we're a fan of whatever team that we happen to be a fan of, we want our guys who take the floor to be that competitor and not give a damn about anything else that's going on around him. And that, I think, summarizes Christian Leitner. He just happened to play for a team that, that we all hated, and maybe we hated that team because of him. Right. But at the same time, he, he's the guy. You would want that guy on your team 
every day. Well, there's a lot of players and coaches on your favorite team that like might be a jerk or something, but right. he's your jerk. Or like Manny Ramirez was one guy, he was nutcase, but then when he got on the Red Sox, if you're a Red Sox fan, you were happy about it. Yeah, exactly. But also at the end of the day, this is a guy who he was somebody's son. He was somebody's brother. He was that's I, I and I think that's what's so good about the way they did with this is they go to other sides and they talk about different angles. Now the one thing I don't get the feeling he and Bobby Hurley are particularly tight because there was always kind of a big brother, little brother relationship between those two, and Leitner was always jabbing hmm. Bobby Hurley. And Leitner would tell you he was trying to bring out the best in Bobby Hurley, but I think a lot of it was uh, there There was still some bully. It's just that, yeah. yeah. Where it didn't work. Sometimes it worked, but I think Christian Leitner would tell you it's all for the best because they wanted to win, and that's what he was trying to bring out. I don't know that Bobby Hurley – necessarily feels exactly the same way about that. See, what's crazy is that early 90s, and this documentary is made 20 years later, and they still look back and talk about the same things that are relevant. Yep. But, I mean, Christian Leitner, again, when you go to the era of the four-year player, still has the NCAA tournament record for most points scored, most free throws made, most free throw attempts, most game one, games won, 21 NCAA tournament games won in a career. I mean, think about that because it takes – Six wins in a tournament to win a national championship. 21 career wins in the it's tournament. Pretty good. And most games played with 23. And those ga- those records are never going to be broken again because players don't stay around long enough to achieve them. Well, I don't know about that because you could have a guy that's a bench warmer that isn't good enough to go pro and he stays for four years. Well, he's not going to – he's not going to – he's could, a bench warmer. He's not going to be – maybe yeah, but, the games. Maybe yeah, the games. That's right. But I'm he's at. not going to be breaking any points, records, free throws, any of that kind of stuff, stuff that actually matters. Yeah, that's probably true. All right. So what's one of your favorites? Well, we I don't have as much of a deep dive on it. <laughs> um, I'll say one of my favorites that I enjoyed watching was This is the XFL. Okay. They did a documentary about the football league that the WWE tried to, and they're trying to redo now. Yeah. And it was really the interesting. The original XFL. It was really interesting to look back at how disorganized all that was. And they were just trying to throw money and get a football league, basically a cash grab, just trying to make it. And mm-hmm. they put a lot of effort into the launch, but the players had only been practicing for like a week. The talent level was bad. And it was just kind of an interesting documentary about all the chaos behind the scenes. He hate me and all that. Good stuff. I think I think that's the one that stands yep. out the Rod most. Rod Smart. Do you think, have you followed it very much with this latest incarnation, Vince McMahon trying to recreate the XFL? Um, a little bit. It seems like that was mostly him trying to promote everything, and he brought in wrestlers like The Rock to help launch, and some of the announcers were wrestling announcers, which they have football experience, but not for a long time, and calling games that are that poor. Mm-hmm. And then the XFL had the problem with um, SNL. They had a game window. They had the generator died. The game went long. The SNL was live after the game. You're talking about Saturday Night Live. Yep. And the host was Jennifer Lopez, who at the time of the number one movie, number one album out in the country, a huge guest. I can only imagine. Because Jennifer Lopez isn't a diva at all. Well, (laughs) is it? That's sarcasm, by the way. um, Who's the producer of SNL? He was. Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels was like losing it because his game, the stupid XFL game, went way long. Running, yeah. And so um, then you're pushing. I mean, you're you, no matter what you think about Saturday Night Live today, it's still NBC's longest running franchise and one of the longest running franchises in all of network TV. I mean, that in 60 minutes, for right. that matter. And to have that guest, that that's where the XFL really turned because then they didn't want NBC to air the games on Saturday evenings. But yeah, the new launch of it, 
What can they do to be different than the football league that folded last year or the Alliance of American? Because I really thought that the Alliance of American football last year had a shot just based on the backing they had with different TV, the Mm -hmm. technologies they had, all that different stuff. I was just shocked that because it was really after what, one or two weeks that they already had to be bought and have somebody save them. And then, of course, they didn't make it until the end of the year. Yeah, and I think, again, that's part – I think they rushed it. I think they rushed their launch to undercut the XFL, mm-hmm. and it just – they didn't have enough stuff in place. Uh, Steve Spurrier was a coach in that league, wasn't yeah. he? And yeah. Bob Stoops is going to be in the new XFL. I think Spurrier's got a ring from that league for because that they had maybe the best record at the time of the collapse. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, good it, – it'll be interesting. I just really I, – I don't think a second pro football league is ever going to work. In this country, I, I, they've they've tried it on a lot of different levels. I just don't think it's ever going to work. They even had the World League at one point, well, right? The back in the seventies. No, it was all the way through the nineties. Oh, the World League of Professional a, Football, where they played the overseas Europe, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, and that didn't last. No, nope. they, they tried bringing Canadian football to different American cities. That didn't last. I think the only way that the XFL has any legs to it is if they can find a way to get those kids between the ages of eighteen and twenty-one, so they aren't three years out of high school, so they can't go pro. But they don't want to go to college. They could go to the XFL. Yeah. But are you going to get enough of those high recruits to make it worth watching? And they would also probably, knowing Vince McMahon, they would try to bind those players up, though, contractually, where it's a double-edged sword, where you're going to come out of high school, but you're you're not allowed to bail for the NFL until For those three years, years, but you're getting paid. Yeah. Which kind of brings me to my second favorite, or not not ranked, but another one I wanted to bring up was Small Potatoes, the story of the USFL. Oh, you, you like all these little... Yeah. The USFL, a lot of the players, like Steve Young was in that. Um, I can't remember. I, I bet I've seen both of these, but I don't remember any specific details about them. But. And this one was pretty cool because I, I knew all these people from the NFL. I didn't mm-hmm. realize how popular the USFL was for a minute. Yeah, they did have some good talent. Yeah, and that's kind of what they did. What you just talked about signing, so they couldn't go pr- to the NFL. Yeah, they would just sign to the USFL draft, and then you're already in the league. So that's kind of an interesting take on it. Yeah, you had Steve Young, you had Herschel Walker, the the probably the two biggest names playing in the USFL. Doug Flutie played in the USFL for a while. They, yeah, they they tried to make themselves so that they could compete with the NFL in terms of dollars. But I mean, but that's impossible. I think what they all find out. Yeah. Is you've still got to fill these huge stadiums at the end of the day. If you're going to pay these salaries and keep things running and the NFL has just been around for so long and people are so conditioned to watching professional football from August, essentially when preseason games start all the way through February February. now. And I just don't think, I just don't think that the product is good enough that, that people care beyond that. No, the NFL has 32 teams. Each roster has 53 guys, I think. Mm-hmm. So the best player in your next league is going to be like the 1,000th best player overall. Yeah. Like who wants to see that guy? I still think the, the best way to do it is kind of along the lines of what you're saying. You, you create a minor league feeder system where you are trying to, and that's part of what the Alliance of American Football was doing too, but... You work in concert with the NFL where maybe you're getting guys out of high school who, who again, don't want to go to college, are not equipped maybe academically to go to college. Instead of going a junior college route or something like that, you're, you're playing for a smaller 
professional, professional yeah professional football team and and you it, it works as a feeder system for the NFL and then how do you do that with standalone though if NFL was running that feeder system it'd be successful probably right or a better shot at being successful right but they're not even affiliated so it's gonna be tough all right so my next on my list of top 30 for 30s is one called four days in October and this one is about the last four games of the 2004 American League Championship Series between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And, of course, it is notable because that is the only series. The Sox had dropped the first three games of the ALCS. Then they come storming back to become the first and still the only team in any sport to overcome an 0-3 deficit to win the series. And what was the line? Which one? Don't let, don't. <laughs> don't let us win tonight? Yeah. The Kevin Millar talking to Dan Shaughnessy, the Boston, the longtime Boston writer, down in the field, and and that I mean that was there's just so much good behind the scenes footage and hot mics that like I don't know what they were gonna do with any of this footage if they if, lost yeah got swept because the Red Sox were on the verge because there was a guy and we'll get to the one we'll we'll do this after this there's one. Uh, where a guy was, I think, in 2003 trying to do a documentary about the Cubs because they were in a situation. They were on the verge of going to the World Series. Now, the, the 30 for 30 we're going to talk about ended up being something else, but this guy was was doing this whole behind-the-scenes buildup, but as soon as the Cubs lost, all that footage became useless. But this became, obviously, gold because of mm-hmm. the fact that the Red Sox became the only team to to do this, to come from behind. And that's kind of an interesting era because documentaries have obviously been done before, but it's getting so much easier to record things on phones with smaller cameras. Yeah. So it's almost like everybody was trying to do documentaries at that time, and it was just a booming time for them. And they got access, and they just used it. And just just so much good locker room stuff, all the candid stuff down in the field where you've got different guys talking. And and just classic documentary style where you've got the key guys in all of this. David Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, uh, Tito, the, the, the Tito Francona, the manager of the Red Sox. And, and a lot of these different players where they're sharing their thoughts on when, when this different stuff is going on. And, and one of the coolest things about this whole thing, the, the whole comeback, I mean, it started in game four because it looked like the Yankees were going to sweep this thing. Mm-hmm. They go to the ninth inning. They've got a lead. Kevin Millar comes up, leads off the inning with a walk. They pinch run Dave Roberts for him. Everybody knows Dave Roberts has got to steal second base. And just the detail about pitch to pitch. Thought what Dave, by thought. Yeah, what Dave Roberts is thinking in the whole thing. And so he steals second. Bill Miller singles him in off the greatest closer of all time, Mariano yeah. Rivera. Yeah. And so it gets it to extra innings. It becomes a marathon. It goes into the next day, which it seems like all playoff baseball games do. Oh, <laughs> now, yeah, by the well, way, there's six hours now. So late. And then, of course, David or Dave Mar- or uh, David Ortiz Big joins poppy. Red Sox lore, and he hits the walk-off home run, the first of a couple walk-off hits in that whole stretch. Just all the great stuff in the field that you get for everything that went into that comeback. And what makes you, I mean, obviously you glossed over it a little bit, but it was against the Yankees. Yeah, that too. Against your biggest rival. That's been keeping you down for 100 years almost. Right. What and was it, 88 years at that time? Yeah. And one of the one of the other parts of this is it's got Bill Simmons, who used to work for ESPN, who's now, he runs a, a website 
called The Ringer. He, he and actor, comedian Len Clark, they're sitting in a bar, and they're also kind of going back and forth. Right, with, remembering their with personal. With some of their memories and, and sort of yeah, as, as this series went on. And you also get like, Fan scenes at the cask and flagon that one of the one of the bars around the area and just all the eruption and and you've got you've got news footage. There's just all kinds of good stuff that the bloody sock, of course, Kurt oh, Schilling. Yeah. And, and there's so many good stories that come out of that one those four days. I know a Rod knocking the ball out of uh, the pitcher's hand on that little weak ground ball and he ends up getting called up because that was the thing. It's like. The Red Sox never seemed to get any breaks. It always, I mean, the curse of the Bambino, it seemed like everything was against them. And then A-Rod, it looks like, knocks the ball out of the pitcher's hand, trying to get to first base. He ends up getting to second. Jeter had scored. The Yankees had taken the lead. So it looks like, okay, all the momentum's going to swing. But again, it's like the way they chronicle Bronson Arroyo. That's who was on the mound. I couldn't right. think of him for a second, the Red Sox pitcher. But... It ends up getting called back. He goes back to first, and they go on to victory. And um, obviously, what also makes the story is that they ended up winning the World Series. Yeah, and that that even added the bigger bunch Cherry on the and top. Of course, yeah, and so they were down 0-3 in the ALCS. They win eight straight games to win the season after they end up sweeping the Cardinals out of the World Series. So a lot of cool stuff that goes into four days in October. And again, the Yankees are so polarizing, so that makes you cheer for the Red Sox almost. That's right. And the Red Sox have kind of become... The Yankees. The modern yeah. version of the Yankees with, what, four World Series titles now? With three since then, but since 2004, all those curses, everything is gone. Yeah, this year doesn't look great, though. So let's <laughs> let's do the, the Ca- next one yep. that deals with baseball real catching quick. Catching hell. Yeah, and that is Catching Hell, which is about Steve Bartman and the Cubs in the 2003 NLCS. Did you see this one? I have. I, I wrote it down. It's an interesting watch. The documentary, I think, went a little too long. Like, it almost dived too deep into just one guy's robbing of the foul ball. Yeah, it, it was tough because it ends up all being about Steve Bartman. But that's what it, the, the catching hell, he literally caught hell. The Cubs are up 3 nothing in the eighth inning of the 2003 NLCS. They're four outs away from going to the World Series, breaking their own long drought. And then a little pop-up, Luis Castillo pop-up, foul territory, down the left field line. Moises Alou is going after the ball. He leaps at the wall to try to catch it. Bartman wasn't the only guy who was reaching for it, but he ends up being the guy who gets his hand on it, and he caught hell as everything unravels in that inning. And then the next night as well in Game 7 as the Marlins end up winning it all. Lots of stuff bugs me about this. I mean, I, About the documentary, No, you mean, that's or? what I mean, about that whole thing. <laughs> They didn't lose because he hit a foul ball. It's fine. Yeah, the documentary no, was... I, I, you're exactly right. He didn't lose because Bartman interfered with a foul ball. Right. That's what you mean. Because there yeah. was an error at shortstop. There were a lot of things. They were still leading. They lost a whole other game. Yeah, but as, as things un- unravel as that inning progresses, then Bartman starts getting heckled. People are throwing beers at him. He's getting booed. They have to usher him out of there. They take him to the bowels of the stadium. They've got to get him out, and just it goes into detail and all that. What obviously would have put an icing on the cake on this is if Steve Bartman would have come out and done any interviews, but he has nope. stayed as hidden as hidden can be. He doesn't. He still doesn't want to talk on the record about this. And that's kind of minus him, who they did see him at the end, they think, right? 
in a parking garage or something. They're trying to follow him to get right. an interview, and they see him. Right. But that, I thought it was a pretty cool look at how they got him out of the stadium and how awful it was for him for that 24 hours oh. right after the game. And remember, I mean, because this is in, what, mid-October, and Halloween is a week or two later, and people are – Kids are going trick-or-treating dressed up as Steve Bartman with, with a Cubs hat, the turtleneck. The headphones. Headphones, everything. And, I mean, this is a diehard Cubs fan. The Cubs tried to make it up to him. They gave him a World Series ring. I think it would have been nice if a lot more people had come out and been more vocal a lot earlier. Supporting him. About supporting him. I, I think it took too long for that to happen. Kind of like, And they do spend some time comparing it to what happened with Bill Buckner. In, uh, in Boston in 1986 as well. And Moise Salou, I think, was kind of what made this blow up. Just the way his he, reaction. The way he looked back at him. And then and he kind of like he flung right. his glove and the whole thing. And then I think I heard in an interview years later, he said he might not have caught the ball anyway. <laughs> you know, so. Would have been nice to say that. Uh, right know, again, then. A little like, bit sooner. And take it responsibility. Be like, yeah, we lost the game. We'll come back. We'll win tomorrow. True story. So I was supposed to be at that game that night. I had tickets to Did you sell your tickets to a guy named Steve? No. <laughs> so two friends of mine end up going to the game. And my son, so this was 2003. My son is seven years old, diehard Cubs fan at the time. So we had tickets to both that game and the next night, game seven of the NLCS. So a friend of mine ends up going because I had some work obligations. I couldn't go. So a friend of mine ends up going. So I called him up at the beginning of that inning, oh, the no. eighth inning, to say, hey, can you just get a T-shirt for my son? Because we're obviously not going to be able to go now, it looks like. Because they're going to be winning and it's over. So we're talking oh, no. as all this is going on. Everything. And so it goes from a 3 nothing lead to obviously they're trailing. Chaos. When I called him, he was as giddy as a schoolgirl. And by the time I can't remember at one point at what point they end up losing eight to three. I can't remember at what point he decided he was done, but the, the, the <laughs> crowd was a lot quieter and he finally just said, I've got to go. Goodbye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and so that was the end of the conference. So we were talking while this everything was unfolding in that inning. We go the next night. Game seven, they got off to a good start. Kerry Wood hit a home run early yeah, in the game, good. gave the Cubs an early lead. They end up falling in that one. The Marlins end up winning their second World Series in six years, I guess it was, at that point. Yeah, the Marlins have only made the playoffs twice and uh, won the World Series both times yeah. with not-so-great teams. 95-year drought at that point it was, and of course it – lasted until 2016 now are you happy they won in 2016 so that you're no longer blamed for the curse of 03 <laughs> for, for being the one who called and jinxed yeah. the whole thing yeah you're on the, the only phone. one that's true too i guess <laughs> yeah all right what's another one for you um I'm realizing i have a bunch of football ones <laughs> here i'll go i'll get a basketball one okay i don't know why i enjoyed this but the magic moment one but the story of the orlando magic getting Shaq and penny you like a lot of rando 30 for 30s well, what do you? What, no, I'm just no, saying. No, okay. What's a non-rando? What? I think I think the I hate Christian Leitner is non-rando. You're the only person I've ever heard talk about that one. Really? Yeah. I mean, thirty for thirties don't come up in conversation, I guess. But like that catching hell one, obviously local ties. But I hear about that one. Yeah, I, I don't know. 
a lot. I remember when I hate Christian Leitner came out. It seemed like everybody I knew was really into it. But it's personal preference. Again, I think it's whatever story happens to strike you. And that's part of the magic moment. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not knocking it. Don't right, get me right. wrong. It just doesn't register really off the top of my head. In that era of the NBA, I mean, there's a lot of other things I could knock with you. So yeah, I'd like to knock you for versa. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, vice versa. <laughs> anyway, they uh, that era of the NBA, I grew up in the 90s, so that, to me, when they had Shaq, Penny, Jordan, the Bulls, felt like every team had a superstar on it. And just to see how the magic were created, how Shaq started his career, and Penny, and how terrible it all went for them all. They built this super team before there were super teams. Yeah, they should have been better for a long time. And they, all, Shaq ends up going to... Los Angeles winning championships with Kobe instead of Penny Hardaway. And that documentary kind of shows, too, about how the area of Orlando became a basketball town during this. Cause before, that was empty. It's not now. And they were bad, and <laughs> yeah. now it's back to that kind of bit. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay. Good one. Nostalgia factor. All right. Bring. How about Elway to Marino? I think that's probably on both of our lists, right? Yeah. I Dan Marino is my favorite athlete of all time, which so of makes course, sense yeah. that it's on this. Yeah. What struck me here's here's what I learned. And this, of course, it goes into detail. Elway to Marino, they were both drafted in 1983, which is thought of as the biggest NFL quarterback draft ever. You've got Jim Kelly in that class as well. Tony Eason, Todd Blackledge, Ken O'Brien. Now. The last three, Eason, Blackledge, O'Brien, things didn't work out as well for them, but you've got three Hall of Famers that led off this class, and those other guys at the time were thought to be every bit as there was a lot of dissension about who's the best guy in this. It's kind of like Manning and Leaf when those guys came out, what, 14 years later, I guess. I mean, there was a lot of, there were a lot of people. You mean Drew Bledsoe and Ryan Leaf? No, Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning. They were the same year? They were the same year, yeah. Where So Drew Bledsoe had a class, too, where was it Drew Bledsoe and Rick Meyer? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was that was earlier, and there was yeah. a lot of conversation there about who Where RG3 versus one. Andrew Luck. Yeah. So the film really, where it, where it kind of catches me, is it features the recollections of Martin Demoff. He was the agent for both Elway and Marino, and he's got a personal diary. That he keeps. And it's just a lot of different stuff leading up to the draft. And so there's some great stuff in there. And really, it chronicles the indecision with the Baltimore Colts had with them drafting Elway. And what I learned watching it, I never liked Elway because of the fact I knew that he was drafted by the Colts and he forced his way out of Baltimore by forcing a trade to Denver. And so I never cared for him because of that. What I didn't realize, and you get a lot of that from this diary and watching this 30 for 30, is he had he was up front with the Colts. He said, look, I'm not going to play for you. He had even gone to baseball. Yeah, to baseball to play with the Yankees. He told him. He told Ernie Acorsi, the, manager, the general manager of the Colts, I'm not going to play for you. Don't draft me. They draft him anyway. And then Elway, I think for a long time, was the bad guy, maybe to this point was the bad guy but he was up front he said don't do it they did it they traded him and so there was so i i gained a lot different perspective about things that actually transpired know any other quarterbacks have done that eli manning eli manning exactly. people forget that With he did that he forced his hand to be traded to the and Giants. i think and i think it was more his dad 
Archie than anything. Sure, but it's the same but result. It was a, and it was the same rationale because they didn't – neither one of them liked the, the organization and just kind of the way they do business and that kind of thing. But, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it ended up working out okay. The Chargers still got Phillip yeah. Rivers. It worked out. Yep. Eli won a couple Super Bowls. But <laughs> and then um, I, I cut you off, so so jump into oh no, I was just saying some I, of your favorite parts. The thing I didn't like about John Elway growing up is that Dan Marino was kind of always overshadowed after Elway got his Super Bowls. Yeah, and John Elway went out as a hero, and now he's one of the, he needs his own documentary because now he's one of the best players turned owner. Marino, oh no, Elway. Elway with the Broncos or management. I mean. The only question is, is he actually a good owner? Because he's he's yeah. made what? One good move, getting Peyton Manning. And you get, could argue that even. the Super Bowl a couple times, winning the last one. But yeah, yeah, but how many other franchises are winning Super Bowls? No, that's that's very valid. But Again, as a Dolphins time, fan, we're not going anytime soon. And I, and I think you can make the same case like with the Chicago Cubs currently. They win the World Series in 2016. The signing of Jason Hayward as the biggest example that hasn't what they're paying him. It hasn't justified. He hasn't justified on the His field. Salary. But at the same time, they won the World Series that year after they signed him and everything else. Some of the moves that they've had to make, trading Glaber Torres and and some of these other guys. But you can justify it because they Not won the, the World Series. They ended the drought. So even though these last few years they haven't had the same kind of prospects with, that they would have, the ultimate goal is to win. So I think you can make that case with Elway as well. And I'm wondering. Every franchise is different, but how long do you get the shine of the championship where you, you're like, you know what, we got it? How long does that last? If Not Cubs, very long based yep. on what's going on with the Cubs right now. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I think the way last year they crumbled kind of. I mean, it took all of about a year and a half for, for discontent to come back up. No one's ever satisfied. No. But Elway has won as a manager. Elway's won as a player. Yeah. One of my other favorite ones is called 42-1. to 1. It's about Buster Douglas beating Mike Tyson back in 1990. Baddest man on the planet. <laughs> he was. He was at least, and I've said this before, Tyson was a lion in an era of essentially deer yeah. <laughs> in boxing where he was just devouring everybody. There just weren't that many good contenders. I think at some point, like, you could compare it to some of the things that happen in Rocky where you're hungry coming up. You reach the point where you've just demolished everybody. It's hard to stay hungry, especially when you've got all these spoils around you and, and the money and, and fame and everything else. Buster Douglas was a guy who was completely overlooked. Nobody in the States wanted this fight. I think there was supposed to be somebody else. It didn't happen. Vegas didn't want it. New Jersey didn't want it. It's like, okay, we're going to go to Tokyo because they, they couldn't find – another place to have it. Buster Douglas always felt like he was a much better fighter than his reputation. He wasn't always in the greatest shape, but obviously he went to Tokyo that night and literally shocked the world. Knocking the win. Out, yeah, knocking out the guy that nobody thought could ever be knocked out. And is this the last great era of boxing? I think it was. So there, was could, there was Holyfield Tyson say, that went on. And Lennox but, Lewis. Yeah. But they weren't, they didn't have, Tyson might be the last, um, household name yeah. from the boxing world for at least a while. Holyfield, I think, was you you would still call a household name, but, but was at it, the same time, not nearly as, as well, flashy. And and what do you remember about Holyfield? Just Tyson biting his ear. So Tyson. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's an interesting time in boxing, too, because... Yeah. Did you see this one? I did not. 
I highly but recommend it. I like boxing, so that'd be kind of fun to. And that's I grew up in the era where boxing was still a big deal. It is not. It hasn't been a big deal for a long time because of what you're talking about. There just aren't. There there are some good fighters in the lower weights, but it's still the heavyweights that are the draw, and there just aren't those guys anymore. And I, I've always wondered what the dynamics of that are. Uh, just as with football, I think there are a lot more concerns about head injuries and, the, and and maybe people seeing Muhammad Ali toward the end and not knowing. I agree. I mean, it, it was Parkinson's, but at the same time, I think a lot of people directly related it to the fact that he was in the ring and some of the beatings that he took. I don't know how much actually directly led to that, but I, I think that a lot of people still thought that, well, whether, I think- whether it's proven or not. So they don't have the stars ready built like they did with Tyson with mm-hmm. those guys. But I think what turned a lot of boxing fans, fair weathered fans away from boxing is the corruption of the scoring and um De La Hoya had a fight not too long ago down in the Philippines, I think. Okay. And the <laughs> or it was him or he an undercard or something, and there was a match where the guy got beat up every round and then the scores came in and the other guy won and it was his home country. And there's a lot of skepticism. And if they were getting paid to score it a certain way, I'm gonna I'm gonna digress just a little bit because the last point I wanted to make, I wanted to go back to Elway to Marino okay. real quick because there was a lot of conversation about what after Elway was drafted by the Colts and there was a lot of conversation like there was there was talk that he could get traded for Joe Montana huh. to the 49ers and there was uh, a trade to the Cowboys that was a possibility in there. Um, so there were a lot of different trade possibilities. The Chicago Bears were a possibility. You think about the ripple effects that's had on the last almost four decades of the NFL now. Like if Elway gets traded to the Cowboys, Troy Aikman never plays for Dallas. I don't know if Emmett Smith does because they're going to be a better team, for one, you would think. So you can't get him in the draft. Yeah, does Jerry Jones show up? Jimmy Johnson? Everything there, even the 49ers. Steve Young probably never plays for the 49ers if Elway gets traded there. That's wild. And every franchise. And the Bears were good back yeah, then. Yeah, I mean, just, just like now. I mean, we can all sit here and speculate and second-guess Trubisky and Mahomes just a couple of years ago. What happens if, right. if the other team makes that draft? But all these possibilities that were going on behind the scenes, and apparently well, it was – it was the trade with Dallas was really, really close. I mean, even Denver, the ripple effect that has on them, how that changes everything that's happened since the mid '80s. Well, what's crazy is you could trade whatever every team except for the Redskins passed on Dan Marino. Yeah, he was the next last pick of the first draft. The only person drafted after him was Daryl Green, Good who point. played cornerback for the Redskins for 20 years. Good point. But so every franchise had a chance to get him. Yep. All right, what else you got on your 30 for 30 list? Uh, kind of dovetailing off that same era, the 85 Bears. That was a really good documentary. It was cool to see how the players were loyal to their coaches. Yeah. And um, almost emotional as they all reconnected and came back. And it's nice. Man, I'm trying to, I'm sure I saw it, but I, I, there's nothing jarring my memory as far as is specifics. It, who, and this is bad, but Buddy Ryan, mm-hmm. the defensive coordinator. Yep. And they were saying defense. And they got a new coach head coach and the whole team was like we're not if you don't retain him on your staff we're not playing for you yeah and then they wrote letters and he wrote letters to all the players thanking him and now he was in rough shape when they filmed this documentary but it's cool because all the players 
several of them came and visited him and they were showing that. Was it kind of out on a ranch yes. or something? Like? Yeah. I do remember that now. Yeah, and it was pretty touching to see how much they cared about this guy. Again, cherry on top. They won a championship. Yep. So, But they carried Buddy Ryan off the field at the Super Bowl. Super mm-hmm. Bowl uh, 20 in their, their win yep. over the Patriots. And they kind of gloss over Ditka and him. and Yeah. The relationship wasn't great. It was not good, yeah. He goes to Philly. Yep. And then he left after the Bears went somewhere else and coached and didn't do well there. Yeah. But All right. Have you seen the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30? No, you mentioned this to me, and it sounds like a pretty good one. Yeah, it is, and it, it's a fairly recent one. And being someone who's in radio, I I didn't even really realize the impact that those guys had on sports talk radio. They were essentially Mike Francesa, Chris Russo, known as the Mad Dog, so Mike and the Mad Dog, they were together for years until just a few years ago when they split up on WFAN in New York. But they started in the early 80s and really pioneered sports talk radio. And so that's why, to me, it it was kind of cool to see. Now, they've got – they did break up, and there was a lot of tension in their relationship when they were on the air. They found a way to make it work for a long time. But that almost makes it good radio. Because yeah, you don't yeah. want to hear somebody say something and somebody else agree. Yeah. They didn't have a hard time arguing with each other. Huh, sounds familiar. Kind of like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, then we fake laugh. But there's a yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 19 years they were together on New York City radio. But uh, they had a big impact because it's New York, even though we might not necessarily have known all the stories here. But they had a big impact on just the format of sports talk radio. And they broke through. Per, I mean, it's New York, but they broke through to be national pretty much. Yeah. Yep. All right. Anything else on your list? One that was kind of a downer that I enjoyed watching was the Marinovich project. Yeah. It's kind of sad because he was like pretty much built by his dad to be this quarterback. He went to USC, got mixed up in the wrong crowd. Didn't last long. No. Went to the Oakland Raiders, drafted. I think, did he get kicked out of USC? Or kicked off the team. Yeah. And then he ended up going early to the NFL. Because I think he was a supplemental draft pick. Does that sound right? Yeah. Because he'd already flamed out, you know, before college even. And then he went to um, the Arena League and was on drugs real bad and couldn't. And it sounds like he's in a lot better place now. But he was, I mean, he was raised, you know, health food, no Big Macs, uh, none of that. I, I remember there was a big article about him. In Sports Illustrated, I think when he was going into USC, all the workouts and everything else, he was literally bred to be an NFL quarterback by his dad. Was it Marv Marinovich? Yeah. And then at the end of the documentary, his headspace is in a better spot, but he was still struggling with life. Yeah. You know, he was homeless for a while. I think and he's doing some art and stuff like yeah, that. But it's just a weird story. Yeah. There's a, I mean, and that's that's what's cool about Thirty for Thirty is it sheds some different lights on a lot of different stuff. Just you know, like the Rodman thing, yeah, for example. But all right, my last one that I will offer up today is Survive in Advance, and it's the story of Jim Valvano and the North Carolina State National Championship team. And it is just, I think a lot of people know the story. I think it. It's probably regarded as one of a handful of the biggest Cinderella runs mm-hmm. to a national championship, along with Villanova in uh, 85 and maybe Kansas even in 1988, but this one even more so because this team, that was when Ralph Sampson was still dominating college basketball at, at 
Virginia, but this is a team that first they, they had to win the ACC tournament or they probably weren't going to get into the NCAA tournament. And so they knock off Virginia to do that. And then they all these games, as they run through the NCAA tournament, they're all close. There, was, there were a couple big rallies that they had to make to come from behind and win. They had to play Virginia again in the NCAA tournament. And then, of course, they beat Phi Slamma Jamma, led by Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler at Houston to win the whole thing. And even in all of sports, Valvano running around after the the last game trying to find somebody to hug and um, that missed half-court shot and put back, those are still some of the most iconic sports images you'll ever see. Yeah, exactly. It just Yeah, the, the whole thing where, where he's looking around, who am I going to hug? Right. <laughs> and then and that was the missed shot, right? It was a half-court shot. Right. And he just laid it in. Yep. Or he called the guy Slammed called it, it a pass. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, but that play is shown all the time, everywhere, and every sports open, everything. Yep. One of the one of the great uh, Cinderella runs all time in NCAA tournament history. Any more? Um, that goes through my list. Okay. All right. So that's just a sampling of some of the thirty for thirties, and we've talked about trying to do trying to do a, a podcast on one thirty for thirty because it's it's a little bit outside what we usually do. You can't critique it through the actors or the writing. Exactly. Well, maybe, but you that's the subjects. It's not an actor. Yeah, exactly. Well, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're there, rate us, leave some feedback. Feel free to suggest a movie to us to discuss in the comment section on the podcast as well. Good stuff. I mean, we, I think we got a, a lot of them in there. A lot of good 30 for 30s and some food for thought. Yeah, there's still a lot of good ones out there, too. Yep. So, uh, again, if you've got a, a sports movie you'd like us to jump into on the podcast, let us know, and we'd be more than willing to at least consider it. Yeah, maybe we'll actually like a movie if someone else suggests it. We'll we'll agree on one eventually. Good point. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Two guys talking sports movies.